Welcome to Migrations, A World on the Move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, postdoctoral associate in migrations, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. This season, we're thinking about waiting, exploring experiences of migration through the lens of time. And for this episode, Waiting in Exile, I'm really happy that we're able to host a piece produced and narrated by Daniel Bernstein, a junior at Cornell, about how a Tibetan community has come to call Ithaca, New York, home. And Daniel's actually here with me to help introduce the episode. Hi, thank you for having me, Eleanor. I'm really excited to be here. And can you um, situate a little bit yourself and your studies and how you came to produce this episode? Sure. So I'm a junior government major in the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell. Um, I've been interested in journalism for a long time. I I worked on my local paper in high school. I write columns for the Cornell Daily Sun. Uh, And last semester, I took a class on journalism and immigration policy with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Molly O'Toole. Uh, And throughout the semester, we worked on a long journalism project something about something loosely related to immigration. And so I decided to work on, do a sort of community profile on Ithaca's Tibetan community. Um, For those who don't know, and you'll hear this later on in the episode, uh, the North American branch of the Dalai Lama's personal monastery is in Ithaca, New York, of all places. So the Dalai Lama has come to Ithaca multiple times. And I found this out at some point over the summer when I was actually living here in Ithaca. And I was just so fascinated about why come here, about this community in Ithaca, about how it's very small but very tight-knit. And so I decided I really wanted to learn more about it because I myself was very curious. And I also felt that it was something that people in my class, people at Cornell, people in Ithaca and around could uh, appreciate hearing about and take something away from. I love the way you tell the story of this community because I think for listeners who are based locally here at Cornell or in central New York, it tells us a lot about a space that we might think of in, in different ways that we might, you know, communities that we may or may not be aware of who, that we are sharing these spaces with um, and that we may have interacted with in different ways. But the story that you tell also has, I think, a really broad significance as a story of exile and how people come to make their home, as you said, in what may seem like a kind of unexpected space. Um, And in the story, as you tell it in the episode, you bring in a lot of different voices. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you connected with the community and how you thought about um, who you wanted to talk to to be able to tell this story. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, one thing that I try very clearly or try very hard in the episode to do is to say, um, Uh, Tibetan Ithacans, because these people who are from Tibet, who are living in Ithaca, are very much Ithacans. They're very much part of this community. Um, And I talk about this throughout the episode. Uh, But distinctly throughout the Tibetan diaspora, uh, it has been a movement that has sort of been almost waiting to go home. And that is obviously the theme of this episode, right? Um, Because Tibetan exile was never supposed to be permanent. And so we see this sort of question of uh, maintaining one's culture and maintaining one's identity when the temporariness of the exile is sort of, um, the boundaries of that are sort of fading, you know, it's becoming, it's becoming seemingly more and more permanent. Um, 
But to get back to the question of how did I sort of come, come into contact with people is I really sort of knew a little bit about the Tibetan community, not very much at all. I knew that there were Tibetan businesses because I saw the, the uh, Tibetan Momo bar at the Ithaca Farmer's Market, mm-hmm. which makes great dumplings. Um, and I had heard about this monastery. And so I Googled Tibetan businesses in Ithaca and I reached out to people and I reached out to the monastery. I reached out to a, uh, to Kunga Delitzong, who is quoted in the podcast is just a local carpenter who I found by Googling Tibetan businesses in Ithaca. And what I was so lucky, lucky to find was that this community is so tight knit. It really feels like everyone knows everyone. So Kunga was able to put me in touch with, uh, Paul Denosho, who's in also quoted in the episode and many other people who could sort of, um, frame all these ideas and historical contexts and, um, community understandings for me. Another of the themes that comes up in the episode that is, I think, particularly striking is that, of course, you were producing this during the pandemic. And so navigating, um, being able to connect with community that was, you know, that had lost access to particular spaces and and practices and maybe had to shift the way that they were gathering over the last couple of years could you say a little bit more about how that also may affect the the way that you got to encounter people or the kind of story that you were able to tell? Yeah, definitely. So um, when I first tried to reach out to the monastery, um, it was it was uh, entirely closed to the public. That's what right. I found. It was it was actually pretty funny. I, I called the monastery and there I was told closed to the public. You can't talk to anyone. <laughs> um, and then I. Um, was told to contact the Tibetan Association of Ithaca. So I contacted the Tibetan Association of Ithaca and I called up this number and um, uh, someone picks up, I go, hi, am I talking to someone at the Tibetan Association of Ithaca? And they go, we're close to the public, you can't come. And it turns out it was actually the same guy. It was just a different phone number (laughs) listed. So I actually talked to the same people because the monastery was originally closed. Um, I became lucky though, because uh, Kunga Dalatsang, the person I mentioned, was actually working on projects for the monastery. And so because he was really involved in it, because like I said, this community is so tight knit, uh, he was really involved and he was working on building a sort of shelf for um, the monastery. He was there all the time. He was even helping taking out their garbage. Hmm. And so he invited me in and I got to go there and talk to him. And uh, even though it was like pretty difficult to originally get through to people at the monastery, I just so happened to find someone who was really involved there and uh, he was super kind and invited me in and I got to talk to people. So Yeah, who seem really willing to share their stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's just like such a, such a history to the Tibetan diaspora that's really, I think, important to understand for understanding the community here. Um, and I talk about that in the episode. But it, something that's really interesting is that everyone knows this history and can tell it, you know, like it's everyone understands what happened about um, the Dalai Lama and his flight and about um, moving to northern India and the followings of the Tibetan diaspora. You know, people understand this history because it, it's their lives and it's uh, affected this community so um, impactfully. And what's one thing that has especially one one thing in particular that's lasted with you from your experience of putting the story together that you hope 
might also last with listeners of the episode? Sure. I guess uh, one thing simply is that um, Tibetan noodles are the best noodles I think I've ever had. Um, And so I go back all the time and I bring my friends and I say, yeah, well, I worked on this podcast, you know, I, I had this food, I recorded the sound of them making the noodles in the kitchen. So, you know, I, I, I better be coming back. Um, but I think something more sort of broadly um, is the idea of, and I touched on this earlier, of maintaining one's culture away from home. Um, and I really think that's what this piece is about. I, I think this piece is about the preservation of culture and identity when identity and culture feel so threatened. Um, because I think that is what we can take away from the story of the Tibetan diaspora, what we can take away from Tibetans in America and here specifically in Ithaca, is how a community can stay strong and defend their culture and identity when it is so attacked. Thanks so much for sharing this episode with us, Daniel, and many thanks also to Molly O'Toole, who listeners will remember from the first episode of this season, also on waiting. Um, And thanks also to the members of Ithaca's Tibetan community for sharing their experiences. And now I'll hand it over to Daniel. Listening to audio from a Tibetan celebration organized by the Tibetan Association of Ithaca, New York. There's 16 people dancing in a circle, nine women, followed by seven men. A crowd is watching. They're in an open room with colored prayer flags and other decorations hanging across the ceiling. Behind the dancers on the back wall is a shrine to the Dalai Lama, next to which hangs an American flag. This audio, however, comes from 2015, and unfortunately, there are no big celebrations happening this year. Normally, the Tibetan community gets together frequently. There are big parties on the second Saturday of every month, celebrations of holidays like the March 10th uprising, the Dalai Lama's birthday, or the Tibetan New Year, Losar. People bring food, they sing and dance and pray. It's a whole family affair, and almost every Tibetan family in Ithaca comes. But since COVID-19 began, there hasn't been as much organized. The pandemic, however, has not defeated Tibetan culture in Ithaca. In the Tibetan plateau, claimed by China to make up its southwestern corner, there's a nation almost 1,000 square miles large, with high plains and massive crystal clear lakes, seemingly walled off from the world by the Himalayas and smothered by the big blue sky. But its government isn't there. The Dalai Lama, the spiritual and political leader of Tibet, is in exile in India. Today, it's estimated that there are only between 5 and 7 million Tibetans in China and hundreds of thousands in exile according to Minority Rights Group International. Ever since the Chinese occupied Tibet, Tibetans have been forced out in fear of the suppression of their religion and their culture. In her poem, Immigrant, Ithaca-based poet Judith Bernal writes, Our village had 20 streets. In New York, suddenly 1,000 times 20. I'm 12, walk everywhere. That first year, I knit the old world into winter coats. Tibet is knitted into the winter coats of this community of Ithacans. These Tibetan exiles and their descendants maintain the traditions, culture, and spirituality of Tibet 
and they stay close. They gather frequently, support each other's businesses, and it feels like everyone knows each other personally. But they aren't just Tibetans, they're Ithacans too. Their kids go to Ithaca schools, they're at the farmer's market, they play soccer in local leagues. Ithaca can often feel like the middle of nowhere. It's commonly called 10 square miles surrounded by reality, a catchphrase first coined by Peter Hansen in the Ithaca Journal in 1993 that's become a badge of pride for the city. But reality, in all its vastness, can make the small Finger Lakes town feel almost isolated. So it begs the question, how did a strong community of Tibetans form here of all places? Why Ithaca? What makes this city a good home for its Tibetan community? For that matter, what makes any city home, especially for immigrants in search of a new one? And for a people so removed from their homeland, for a culture and religion forced into exile for so many decades, how do Tibetans in Ithaca remain Tibetan? And how do they fit in as Ithacans? To begin to answer these questions, we have to first ask ourselves about why Tibetans might leave in the first place. I sat down with Alan Carlson, an associate professor in Cornell University's government department, to talk about the Tibetan diaspora. Professor Carlson is involved with Cornell's China and Asia Pacific Studies program and is one of Cornell's foremost experts on Tibet. As it became clear that the relationship of the new Chinese government was going to be an acrimonious one, um, you began to have Tibetans leaving. Um, the PRC uh, because they had concerns about their personal safety. Um, the real influx though doesn't occur until 1959. This is obviously when the Dalai Lama leaves uh, China uh, uh, for, the, for what's now been the last time. Um, and really before that, the numbers of in the diaspora or Tibetans in exile was pretty limited. It's, it's after 59, the number jumps up um, and there continues to be a flow uh, that varies a little bit um, year in, year out. I don't think it's quite what it was now because of restrictions and tighter controls over the border. Um, all along, those Tibetans had thought that they were, they're, this was a temporary exile. He's talking here about the start of the Tibetan diaspora. In 1950, the Chinese government began to occupy Tibet in what they called liberation. In 1951, a Tibetan delegation was invited to Beijing and was bullied into signing away its independence, according to Eat the Buddha, a book by Barbara Demick. According to Professor Carlson, however, it wasn't until 1959, when the Dalai Lama escaped, that Tibetans really began to make their exodus. And then, of course, Tibetan who were, he's like, heard the news, those people. Securities obviously getting very suspicious about it, right? And that's when people start to like secure his palace, the summer palace, Nobulinga. People around knowing that now his holiness will be captured. So everybody starts start to surround that place. And then it was and then in the middle of the night when he disguised himself as an ordinary person and then cut through the crowd and left the bed. And the Chinese would say, they're still assuming that he's still there. But the next day, he wasn't there. They started bombarding whoever is there, thinking that he could have been killed among many Tibetans. 
This is the voice of Paulden Osho, a Tibetan Ithacan who works at Ithaca's Namyal Monastery and serves as the president of the Tibetan Association of Ithaca. He was born in Bhutan, attended monastic training in India, and moved to Ithaca in 1994 to work for the monastery. He's been here ever since. He's now telling the story of the Dalai Lama's escape. In March of 1959, His Holiness was in his summer palace, the Norbalenka, three miles south of Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. The palace was surrounded by Tibetans, protecting him from the threat of the Red Army. The Chinese military at that time was stationed in the tens of thousands in and around Lhasa, according to Escape from the Land of Snows, a book by Stephen Talty about the Dalai Lama's flight. In the middle of the night, he left and made his way to Dharamshala, a city in the north of India where he still resides now and where Osho lived for many years of his life. Many Tibetans followed him, in fact. Out of the six or so million Tibetans in Tibet, around 80,000 escaped to India following the Dalai Lama that year, according to the International Campaign to Save Tibet. Talti writes that with the flea, Tibet, in a way, vanished from Tibet. People gradually, you know, discovering that His Holiness has left, okay? Then, of course, they feel like if he leaves, then who else would love to stay back in Tibet, okay? And that would mean that either you stay back with your family, with the rest of your family, or you just go together or just follow him blindly. So that's when people start to leave. With the permission of Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, Dharamshala quickly became a fairly large Tibetan exile community in the seat of the Tibetan exile government. A northern city at the foothills of the Himalayas, it was fairly unoccupied by Indians and pretty geographically similar to much of Tibet. It was a natural fit, but it isn't the only place Tibetans went. After the Dalai Lama's great escape, the Chinese government began to crack down on Tibetans leaving. So escapees went wherever they could. There were large camps of refugee communities formed in Nepal that are still there today, and many others, including Osho's family, escaped through South Tibet into Bhutan. His father, an artist who worked with the Dalai Lama himself, was even arrested and had to escape without knowing if he'd see his family again. And then he was relatively, because of his skill, artist's skill, he was very revered as a good, you know, very uh, special person. So then Chinese came, started coming. He was arrested in the middle of the night. And then he was, you know, kept under watch. And then it was the middle of the night. That must have gone through several days within the family. And then uh, my the father, somehow there was one Chinese translator uh, who helped my father to actually now it's about time if you could leave, if you could leave, it would be ideal time. Because the rest of the Chinese who were there, skewers were all like kind of drunk in the middle of the night. So she told him, leave right now. But then, you know, he had to leave the rest of the family. So he was like stuck in between, right? You can imagine. And he said, now the only option is he better leave. He left himself. And then soon he heard like, like Chinese army, like around yelling, like, where is he, you know, in the middle of the night. And he said, he hid he under somewhere, but they couldn't find him, luckily. And he somehow could able to escape then. But then his wife, two wives, right? And kids were all there at home. But then afterwards, uh, my mother, the two, my two uh, mothers, although, yeah, and to the two, my two mother, and as well as two sons were able to, somehow they were able to escape. And then uh, as they started, so south of Tibet is close to Bhutan. As they started head south, and then my father somehow miraculously, he heard some like a, like a cowbell thing, and he thought this could be regular, like a Buddhist, you know, in that area. But it just turned out that it was his wife and the two sons. 
<laughs> so he said, you can't imagine, you know, you, what are you seeing in front of your eyes? He just stumbles upon yeah, exactly. them. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. Since then, there have been different ways of Tibetan immigration out of the region. It's largely dependent on Chinese policy. Crackdowns from the Chinese government slowed down immigration after the first wave following the Dalai Lama's escape, and it wasn't until the Deng Xiaoping era in the late 70s and early 80s that migration really began again so strongly. From the 80s to around 2000, a few thousand Tibetans left each year. In the early 1990s, in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre and increased pressure from the Chinese government, the United States sought to welcome Tibetan refugees. Around this time, the U.S. offered a lottery program for 1,000 of them to come here. Major American cities were selected as resettlement communities. Minneapolis, Portland, and Salt Lake, and somehow, Ithaca. Now, Tibetans are everywhere. Everywhere, it feels, but Tibet. There have been ups and flows in the numbers of Tibetans coming out of China. Again, largely kind of consistent with during periods of more assimilationist policies, more Tibetans have come out. I, I do think in the last few years that things have changed. Remember, now we're getting to a situation where the numbers, the, the numbers of living Tibetans um, who remember what life was like before, when the Dalai Lama was in Tibet are really dwindling, right? It's been a long time. Um, and so one of the challenges for the diaspora, where you're focusing on Dharamsala, and that makes sense, but one of the, the challenges for Tibetans in the diaspora has been this kind of question of cultural preservation. Um, as now, India still is the, the, the vast majority of Tibetans outside of Tibet live in India, but there are populations scattered around the globe as well, in Europe and the United States, here in Ithaca. Um, and I know from talking to people in that community that they're really kind of facing this challenge of, okay, what it is what is it to be Tibetan if we're outside of Tibet for this long? How do we preserve the culture? How do we preserve the language? Uh, how do we preserve the religion? The exile of Tibetans from Tibet, especially in its beginning, may have been thought of as temporary, but it's been so long for many Tibetans that the prospects of return are slim. And being so far from home, the preservation of culture, language, and religion is paramount to the Tibetan diaspora. It's also one of the main goals of Ithaca's Tibetan community. It's why there are so many get-togethers and potlucks or weekly language classes for children. The group that organizes these events and the community center that hosts them work together to achieve this goal of preservation. That is the Tibetan Association of Ithaca and the Namyal Monastery. It was in 1992 that the Namyal Monastery Institute of Buddhist Studies came to Ithaca. It serves as a cultural center for the city's Tibetan community and a quiet place of solace and prayer. But what makes it more special is its sister monastery. Ithaca's Tibetan monastery is the North American branch of the Namyal Monastery in Dharamshala, which is the Dalai Lama's personal monastery. Yeah, you heard that right. The North American seat of the Dalai Lama's personal monastery is here in Ithaca, middle of nowhere, upstate New York. Back in the 1970s, a local author and artist named Sidney Pyburn had met and befriended the Dalai Lama himself. They met at the Namyal Monastery in Dharamshala. 
The two stayed close, and in 1979, His Holiness made his first trip to the United States, and he visited Ithaca. A little over 10 years later, when Ithaca was chosen as a resettlement community for Tibetan refugees, Pyburn, with the help of some other Ithacans and a Tibetan monk, the Venerable Pema Losang Chongyen, pushed for the foundation of the Namyal branch here in Ithaca. The Dalai Lama approved, and it opened up in an old red house with yellow trimming downtown that actually almost looks like a little monastery. It's right by the creek that runs perpendicular to North Aurora Street. Yeah, that's when it was the monastery. So they had a house that is like, you know, normal, like a house mm-hmm. with the kitchen and stops I mean, right downtown. And then that's where they have the monks, couple monks there. And then they have a meditation, like I said, you know, every night, like 45 minutes meditation. And then they, every other week they have, and they have a classes for the students. They can come, you know, take the class, a Buddhism class or Tibetan language class. You're listening to the voice of Kunga Delitzong. He's lived in Ithaca for about 25 years now, and he works as a carpenter for his own business, Himalayan cedar, named for the wood of a common tree back home in Tibet. He helps out at the monastery with their trash and recycling and was nice enough to show me around. It's no longer on North Aurora Street. Now the monastery has its own large property, 28 acres in fact, about three miles south of downtown Ithaca. It's laid out on a big grass lawn nestled in woods with multiple buildings including housing for monks and a shrine room right in the center of the complex. From above, the property resembles a mandala, which is a complex Tibetan form of artwork. It's quiet and peaceful, which is why he invited me there to record our conversation. Delatsong has been working on a cabinet set for the altar in the shrine room that will serve as a seat for eight statues of medicine Buddhas. Because the monastery has been pretty empty since the start of the pandemic, save for the monks who call it home, he's been able to work on the cabinet set there. He's actually somewhat commandeered the dining hall. Instead of tables and chairs, it's filled with tools and wood slats on sawhorses. This is where we talked. He was born in Tibet, lived in Dharamshala, and moved to New York in the 90s. Deltsong doesn't sit on the board of the monastery, nor does he serve with the Tibetan Association. He's an ordinary member of the Tibetan community. But still, the monastery holds great significance for him. It's part of what's made Ithaca a great place for him to live. For me, this is great. For Ithaca, we have a great community place we can gather. They let us gather over here. So we use this in a place where we can meditate, you know, prayer and stuff. But um, as far as for me is the Ithaca, it's a great place. It's beautiful with nature, with all those things. And then when I first moved over here, because like I and I from when I first came to the state, I used to live in Westchester, Austin. So it's just me and my wife. So I had the kids, so I wanted to have, at the time it's like nine, I got here 90, 96. So it was New York City there, and right now a lot of dependents. At the time, not that many dependents there. And Westchester, I'm so isolated, and I'm just in the woods and my kids. So I want to have my kids to be closer to the community, you know, so they can feel a little culture and stuff. So, yeah, my wife, she went to college. And then so we moved, come up over here and I found out the monastery is here and that's why I like the monastery. And there also this Tibetan community here a little bit because like um, thousand Tibetans who got immigrated to the state and it got part of them. So I kind of liked it. And also this reminds me, it reminds me of the Dharamsala when I was living in India. So people are so friendly and this great little community place, so I loved it. The monastery serves as a center for Ithaca's Tibetan community. 
It hosts events and classes, prayers and meditations. Here in Ithaca, it's a stronghold of Tibetan culture abroad, which is so frequently under attack at home on the plateau. And the guards of the fort that preserves Tibetan culture are the community themselves, which is tight-knit, led by the Tibetan Association of Ithaca. This sound comes from the Tibetan Momo Bar, a restaurant downtown on the Ithaca Commons. It's one of many Tibetan-owned businesses in the Ithaca area, a list that also includes a Tibetan gift shop on the Commons and Himalayan Cedar, Delatsong's carpentry business. Osho says that there's a bit fewer than 20 Tibetan families living in Ithaca, and in the grand scheme of things, that's really not that many people. You wouldn't really say that Ithaca has a big Tibetan community, but it is strong. They gather frequently, run successful local businesses, and everyone seems to know everyone. Our community is such strongly knit community. Okay, it's small, but it's really vibrant in the sense that we really like to get, everybody likes to, loves to get together <laughs> as often as possible. It's, it's a fun time. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we miss each other all the time. You know? The Tibetan Association, of which Osho is the president, is in part to thank. The group includes almost every Tibetan family in the city, and it's who organizes get-togethers, celebrations, or even protests. In March 2016, over 50 Tibetan Ithacans marched through the commons on the 57th anniversary of Tibetan National Uprising Day, marking the Chinese takeover of Tibet in 1959. They were protesting Chinese abuses in Tibet that are still occurring now. The grand question posed earlier by Carlson of cultural preservation in a thought-to-be-temporary but really quite permanent exile doesn't really seem to be weighing so heavily on Tibetan Ithacans. And on top of maintaining their own culture, Tibetans in Ithaca are also Ithacans. We say we're local, t- local Ithacan. <laughs> we have become local, right? Mm-hmm. Now, been here for long enough. We have fully blended into the community now. Mm-hmm. Although we may have our own you know, community, but we are already a powerful integral part of Ithaca. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, and Ithaca is such a peaceful place, I think. Unlike many other places, it's really such a peaceful place. And seeing and everything, except only problem is the summer humidity and the long winter. <laughs> Delit Song plays in the Ithaca United Soccer League every Sunday during the fall. So we have actually clubhouse in Lansing, so which we, yeah, every morning. So we're going to go every Sunday morning. That's my Sundays. Saturday, usually I walk in my house, and then Sunday I go there, we play games. After games, we watch games. Mm-hmm. Yes, watch games together. So we have the clubhouse, so it's cool. So yeah, a lot of those guys from Cornell, professors, and we have like a, all kind of people, like all internationals. For many Tibetan Ithacans, moving to Ithaca was never just about the monastery or the Tibetan community. It was always about being a part of Ithaca too. Even from the founding of the monastery, part of its mission was to give back to this city. Maybe one of the people who was responsible for you know, supporting this kind of a project. He told his holiness, the Dalai Lama, once when he or she met him that uh, it's not that, you know, we invite Tibetans here so that we get benefited, or no, Tibetans get benefited. He said, no, it's the Tibetan people who, when they get here, because out of their sense of kindness, you know, also brings, somehow it brings positive energy towards the you know, people here. And Ithaca has largely welcomed Tibetans' positive energy. When it's open to the public, the Namyal Monastery hosts classes, meditation sessions, and celebrations that include all varieties of Ithacans. The Momon Bar has become a staple of the farmer's market. The Tibetan community is a part of this city, 
and this city has been embraced by the community. I recently went on a trip to the Namyal Monastery in Ithaca with Cornell University's Tibet Initiative for a meditation session and conversation. Somehow, I actually ended up giving everyone a ride, four Tibetan Cornell students, three undergrad Tibetan Americans, and one graduate student, an international student whose home is in India. It was a rainy day, and when we arrived, we met with Geshe Labsung Dondup, a monk who sat and talked with us. He didn't actually speak too much English, so Tenzin Wangyal, the graduate student from India, acted as our translator the best he could. His Tibetan wasn't perfect either, and occasionally he would have to ask the monk for clarifications to help his translations. But he portrayed the message of Buddhist Dharma reflected by the conversation the best he could. We were sitting on cushions in the shrine room, and to my left was Delitzong's cabinet set. It had been finished, and on it sat the medicine Buddhas. You could hear the rain falling on the roof of the monastery. We talked mainly about the concept of anger. So the thing is, uh, if imagine if gave, uh, the uh, our monk here is uh, angry, if he's a really angry person, temperamental person, no one, no one here would say that. Oh, he's so angry. He's a very good person. Like it just doesn't make sense. We would not consider him as a good person. We talked for around two hours discussing the idea of rejecting anger. This is so crucial to Tibetan culture, spirituality, and politics. In rejecting anger, one finds the positive energy that Osho was talking about earlier. Refugees often struggle with safety and acceptance. When one leaves their country out of fear of danger, the fighting doesn't stop after crossing the border. There's a constant attack of one's identity. Who are you when it feels like your home is unsafe, or when you're in a new, sometimes unknown place? The attacks aren't always internal. Refugees are too often subject to discrimination and inequality in the U.S. and beyond. For Tibetans, their home was taken from them and they were expelled. To operate as a society in exile and to preserve culture, language, and religion away from the plateau, they always have to be defending their identity. But overwhelmingly, as I've learned from studying Tibetan history, talking to Tibetans, and participating in the meditation session, the Tibetan response to an attack is peace. Anger is rejected and positive energy is embraced. Here in Ithaca, where an outsider might never expect, the battle wages on. But perhaps we see a model of a community that serves as an example of how best to win. Tibetans in Ithaca maintain their culture, and proudly so. And they also proudly wear the badge of being Ithacan. There's a lot of gratefulness involved, and Osho asked me specifically to include how grateful he is to Ithaca and to the United States. But this community and this city exist symbiotically. Ithaca offers a home, and the Tibetan community gives in return its life and culture. This project was written, produced, and narrated by Daniel Bernstein and edited by Molly O'Toole, originally for her class at Cornell, American Studies 4318. 
American Dream, Journalism, Politics, and Identity in U.S. Immigration Policy. Special thanks to participating interviewees Alan Carlson, Paul Donosho, and Conga Delatsong. Thank you to the Tibet Initiative at Cornell for inviting me to the monastery with them, to Tenzin Wangyal for his translation, to the Tibet Momo Bar for allowing me to record them, cooking my excessive order of food, and to the Tibetan Association of Ithaca for the music and scenes available on YouTube. Information and statistics were retrieved from aforementioned conversations, the Central Tibetan Authority, the Ithaca Journal, International Campaign to Save Tibet, Minority Rights Group International, and the Namyal Monastery website. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Daniel Bernstein for this episode, and thank you for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary, multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us on Twitter at Cornell Mig. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migrations Postdoctoral Associate with the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies and produced by Megan Dement. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Gayukono, the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the nation's sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is basically really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.